Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Scott here. As March transitions into April, warmer evenings become more common. Daylight savings time has pushed the hours of darkness back a bit, but it's still possible to wander out on a clear April evening about 8.30 or 9 and be able to see the stars and planets. Stepping out onto my front porch, which I have established faces more or less to the north, I begin to scan the northern sky for an old friend, a pattern of stars that can make sure of my orientation in the night sky. That would be the Big Dipper. As darkness falls, I spot the dipper high up in the northeastern sky. Its handle points generally toward the northeastern horizon, while higher up are the four stars that make up its bowl. The front two stars of the bowl are the pointer stars. A line passing from the lower star, diagonally opposite the location where the handle meets the bowl, up through the star making the lip of the bowl, continues on to a single, somewhat bright star. This is Polaris, the North Star. Polaris has the distinction of being the only noticeable star that does not move as the night passes, nor does it change its location when one observes from season to season. Though it is not the brightest star in the sky, its steady location throughout the night and throughout the year provides a marker in the sky for the direction north. Finding Polaris helped me establish which direction from my house is north. Thus, I know my cardinal points of east, south, and west from here, too. If I return to the Big Dipper, I can use extensions of its stars to help find the rest of the stars that make up the constellation that contains the Big Dipper. This constellation is called Ursa Major, the Big Bear. The stars that make up the rest of this constellation can be a test of the true darkness of the skies. The stars are dimmer than those that make up the Big Dipper portion, so light-polluted skies may hide them some. To begin, the Big Dipper marks the hind portion of the bear, its long handle being the tail of the bear. If I draw a line along the top of the bowl, starting with the tail and continuing through the lip, I run into two more dim stars, each about as far apart as a pair of stars marking the top of the bowl of the Big Dipper that I use to find them. From the second star, I head back toward the bottom front star of the bowl of the Big Dipper, the same star that was used to start the line to Polaris. The three stars beyond the Dipper are the head, neck, and nose of this bear. The legs are a bit trickier, as they are made of dim stars as well. I can start from the back two stars in the Big Dipper and travel from the star near the handle to the star marking the back bottom of the bowl. That line will pass a dim star, then beyond that a pair of stars next to each other of about the same brightness. That would be one leg and set of claws. Below the belly of the bear are another pair of stars close together and about the same brightness. That would be the other back leg and set of claws. The imagination is needed to flesh out this part of the bear. Finally, the front legs are a collection of dim stars, 
a line extending from the front and bottom star of the bowl out under the nose of the bear, ending at two dim stars side by side. This needs a substitute for both front legs. Maybe from this point of view, one front leg hides the other. When done, the Big Dipper, Ursa Major, is seen climbing up in the northeastern sky. This does raise a question. I have seen my share of bears, and generally speaking, they do not have long tails. What's going on here? One Native American story involves a bear that was drinking water from a stream. A chief saw him there and began to chase the bear. The chase went on for several days, with the chief finally leaping forward to grab the bear, taking hold of its small tail. Picking the bear up by the tail, the chief swung the bear up into the sky, stretching the tail at the same time. The bear got stuck in the sky. It now circles the North Star once a day, turning the sky as it does so. In this way, we have an explanation for day and night. If I now swing to the west, turning left from facing north, one planet can still be seen. That solitary planet is Mars. We continue moving out in front of Mars in our faster orbit, making it dimmer and dimmer each month. Eventually, we will be far enough along our orbit that Mars will disappear behind the sun. But for the moment, seeing that dim reddish dot in the western sky after sunset is what we get. As darkness falls, a V-shaped group of stars called the Hyades can be seen east of Mars, while the tighter grouping called the Pleiades is west of it. The Hyades is a relatively young cluster of stars traveling together through our galaxy. Our Sun likely formed in a cluster like this nearly 5 billion years ago, but in its many trips around the galaxy, it is separated from its sibling stars. The Hyades make up the face of Taurus the Bull, with extensions of each arm of the V leading to a star, each of which mark the end of the horns of the bull. The bright star Aldebaran, which is as bright as Mars, if not brighter, is not part of the cluster and marks the fiery eye of Taurus. The Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, is also a young cluster of stars traveling through our galaxy. This grouping marks the shoulder of the bull. This offers a bit of 3D imaging in the sky. Looking at the sky, it seems that all points of light are in the same distance, all embedded in the celestial sphere that make up the sky. But in reality, all objects are at different distances, and this grouping of objects in the sky allows an example. Mars is closer to us, even though it is almost on the far side of the sun from us. Extending out some 65 light years from us is Aldebaran. Continuing the journey out from Earth would require another 86 light years, a total of 151, to be among the stars of the Hyades. The distance to the Pleiades is just under three times that distance, or 444 light years, to be among its stars. Quite a bit to ponder on a warmish April evening. If you've been listening to the show in the past, you know that Louisville hosted the Big Acres Conference in the downtown Marriott Hotel back in December of 2018. Acres USA is a magazine that's been advocating organic farming since it was first published back in the 1970s. They've been putting on this national conference about regenerative farming or ecological agriculture for the past 43 years. We've already broadcast two complete episodes on this show about what happened at this conference on sustainable agriculture. 
So just check out our broadcasts of December 24 and January 21st, 2018 to listen to that commentary, as well as listen to some sound clips that were recorded at that conference. Well, today, there's one more speaker at that 2018 Acres conference that I would like you to learn about. Judith McGeary spoke on the last day of the conference. The title of her talk was Government Policy and What It Means for Sustainable Agriculture. Ms. McGeary is an attorney who founded the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance to promote common sense policies for diversified agriculture systems. She's been working as a lobbyist and activist in Washington, D.C. for some time now, 15 years or more, and I found her talk to be very enlightening, not only with respect to advocating for environmental agriculture, but I thought her recommendations about how to influence our representatives in Washington to be relevant to anyone who's interested in affecting change at the legislative level, both in Washington and at the state level, too. Judith McGeary spent the first 10 minutes of her talk updating the audience about the upcoming big farm bill that's in Washington, as well as some other legislation like the Food Safety Modernization Act. I'll spare you the details about those two pieces of legislation since it was a few months ago and it's probably all changed by now anyway. Then she spent a few minutes telling us about the constraints and biases that the federal government has about sustainable agriculture. What is it in our current situation that is preventing farmers from taking a more sustainable approach? And what is constraining research on eco-agriculture? Now, Judith McGeary's talk is five to six minutes long, so I'll let you listen to that, and then I'll fill you in on what suggestions she had on how to affect real change at the state and federal level. So here we go, Judith McGeary. So moving on to sort of what I think is the more interesting part of this, but I I wanted to cover some of the major issues um, and and hopefully maybe put some of this in concrete. So when I look at this, when I look at Farm Bill, when I look at the programs they focus on in the Farm Bill, when I look at FISMA, both the actual statute and what they're doing with the implementation, what we see are themes, themes that occur over and over and over. Another phrase people use is the narrative. What is the narrative around our food and our ag? And it's not the narrative we have here, and y'all know that, but it's important to be able to understand the narrative that is being said and really name it. Name it and look at it and understand where people are starting from, you know, policymakers and the public alike. One of the first ones is simply that immediate risks must be addressed. It is a very short-term perspective. So using FISMA as the example, using biological soil amendments, FDA flat out said, we were worried about microbial foodborne illness, salmonella, E. coli, blah, blah, blah. We did not explicitly, like absolutely did not look at long-term health risks. This is not about, well, will more people be healthy or harmed or sick by addressing this versus nutrition? versus the toxins and pesticides and herbicides. There was absolutely zero weight explicitly given to any long-term risks. And this is very much how people think. And it's how we look at everything from food access, the big fight in Farm Bill over SNAP, which looks entirely at where is someone's meal coming from today, which is a vital question. 
but where are people getting food today, but with no thought or concern given really to long-term nutrition, long-term health, long-term solutions to that. And that's viewed as what they should be doing. The important thing is to recognize that's not viewed as a downside. Short-term risks are where the attention is, and it's where they are being told the attention should be. Another one of the common themes is simply that technology means science, that those two terms are interchangeable. Yeah, I love that one. And, and again, it's important to call these out, because the idea is it goes both ways. One is, if it's high-tech, it must be good science. And if it's low-tech, it's not good science. I mean, the, both of those implications are, again, very much there. Our movement is often described as going back. Like, we're going back to organics. You want to turn the clock back? No. <laughs> but that is the view of the sustainable agriculture movement. The movement towards a more low-tech solution is seen as rejecting science. And you see this, again, over and over in where the funding goes in the Farm Bill, where they put money for research. Overwhelmingly, the money for research goes into, you know, development of GMOs not into ATRA, which is appropriate technology transfers to rural areas, which focuses on the low-tech options for farmers. Related to that, and this is something, of course, we all talk about here, and this is, I think, one of the biggest topics of conversation here, is reject what we're rejecting their basic premise, that they know what plants and animals need to grow, and that can be produced very simply with synthetic processes. You know, they believe NPK is all the plant needs. We know that's not true. Recognize that is a fundamental premise. And we'll get into why I'm emphasizing, sort of calling these out explicitly, even on some of the stuff that I know y'all know already. Related to this is the message we need high-tech, high-tech methods to feed the world. How many people have heard that one, that you are going to be responsible for starving children all over the world? Yeah, I love that one. So that, but this is a fundamental premise. This is what people walk into. So when they look at food aid in the farm bill, when they look at how we provide support for whether it's in this country or overseas, the assumption is the only way we're going to do that is through what they call production agriculture, with the translation being it's high-tech, high-input, you know, monoculture approaches. And linked to it is it's not just about hunger and feeding the world, it's this idea that the export market solves all our problems. And this is where the farm bill started to go in the 1980s. Before then, we had supply management. They recognized one of the problems with agriculture and leaving agriculture to the market and simply a free market idea was that agriculture kind of overproduces and underproduces in cycles. And that's not really helpful when you have a basic necessity of life. And so there had been the supply management programs in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s in the farm bill to even out those cycles in agriculture and address the fact that the free market has its flaws when you're dealing with something like food. They took it away in the 1980s. And that was because, hey, if we just export, that automatically absorbs all surplus. We don't need to worry about supply management. And you see this now playing out with the trade arguments. So we're seeing farmers, including you know, some, many of the farmers here, either directly or indirectly, being hit very badly by the trade wars that are happening. As the mar international markets close, there are a lot of farmers out there who are quite close to going out of business and very well may go out of business. But almost no one is asking, why are they ever so dependent on the export market to begin with? The debate is, oh, geez, this is terrible that we have these tariffs. Well, no, we need these tariffs. No one's talking about, like, how did we even get here that our farmers are so dependent on these international trade deals? So that, that reliance on the export is viewed as a good. And the only question is how to make it happen. I mean, even those who are in the Trump camp, for instance, on like, well, let's be, you know, 
impose these tariffs and sort of beat the submission, it's partly about, like, let's force them to take our exports. Let's improve our export market and our trade balance. It's not about, really, how do we rebuild a vibrant domestic system. Still, you know, both sides of those camp, of that camp, is let's push the export market. It's just a question on whose terms that we're pushing the export market. So that was Judith McGarry, an attorney who's been working on sustainable agriculture issues for 15 years or more now, and the founder of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. Later in her talk, she offered some advice on how to persuade our legislators. She thinks that our representatives are tired of the impasse that government seems to be experiencing on controversial issues like abortion, guns, taxes even though there seems to be this intractable divide between the right and the left on these really partisan issues, she thinks that many legislators are anxious to build consensus on less controversial issues. So she thinks that many legislators really want to accomplish something during their terms, that they want to pass bills that they can point to during their re-election campaigns. So she was advising this audience of farmers and eco-agriculture activists to use this to their advantage. McGeary advised the audience to look for common ground on issues so that they could build enough consensus in Washington or in your state capital to craft legislation that actually passes. So net neutrality is an example that she gave. Net neutrality is about corporate consolidation of the media and the internet. And that's a populist issue that she mentioned as something of being of concern to liberals and conservatives and libertarians. In the agricultural area, some examples she gave included public health issues like obesity, nutrition, autoimmune diseases, diet. Protecting the family farm is probably an issue that both Republicans and Democrats are at least going to pay lip service to. Some other examples might be reducing soil erosion, enhancing farmer incomes, infrastructure improvements. I think she's basically telling the audience that when they contact their representatives about things like climate change, alternative agriculture, environmental pollution, try to make the argument starting with a consensus-building approach. She used the example of food deserts, those neighborhoods that don't have grocery stores within walking distance to where people live. She thought that linking the issue of food availability in low-income neighborhoods to local farming communities like farm co-ops and farmers market and community-supported agriculture agreements, CSAs, that's a way of developing a more win-win situation. Someone in the audience mentioned hemp farming as maybe one of these issues. I've always associated the movement to legalize hemp as coming from progressive and libertarian types. But now a lot of Republicans, including our own Mitch McConnell, are now advocating for liberalizing our laws about hemp. Who would have predicted that? Another example she gave was linking climate change with sustainable agriculture. She showed photos of a USDA farm in Texas after Hurricane Harvey had come through. The flooding was pretty bad. But an organic farm that was located in the same county didn't have any flooding because of the high organic matter of the soil. All that excess water just soaked into the ground instead of running off. So by encouraging sustainable agriculture, the government might be able to reduce flooding, water pollution, and other impacts of climate change. 
Judith McGeary basically said that one of the things she's learned after all those years in Washington is that there's basically two ways to influence legislators. Donate a lot of money to their campaigns or have thousands of people call them on the telephone. Now, she was assuming that this audience of farmers and activists didn't really have the kind of money to influence politicians, so she focused on the phone calls. Of course, she was specifically referring to sustainable agriculture issues, but I think her advice applies to other topics, too. She said that these electronic petitions that we get sent all the time through email, they're asking us to sign on to this petition or another. She says those are largely ignored. Now, those forum letters we get from different groups asking us to email that specific forum letter to our individual legislators, those pretty much get ignored, too, especially if you haven't changed the subject line. Imagine getting a 100 emails all with the same subject line. But really, she doesn't think emails really work very much. McGeary says that sending emails to your senators or representatives doesn't have a huge impact on swaying their opinion because they assume that you will have forgotten about that email by the time of the next election. She said that's what it was all about. They really think about the next election. And apparently the average voter really remembers it when they make a phone call to the legislator about a bill, but they really don't remember much about making emails. Voters really don't remember emails they sent weeks or months or years before, but we really do remember phone calls that we make. And we remember that all the way to Election Day. And that's what concerns politicians. Now, issues that represent core beliefs for a politician, they're probably not going to change their vote on just because they get some phone calls. So Senator McConnell, for instance, he's not going to start supporting campaign finance laws or supporting Medicare for all just because he gets a whole lot of phone calls, even if they're from his constituents. But there might be other issues or bills or laws that he doesn't really have a strong feeling about. And so you might be able to persuade him on those types of issues. McGarry talked about the story where she had been talking to a chief of staff of a U.S. senator. The chief of staff told her that when the senator had to face voting for a certain bill or law, and if they didn't particularly care about how they voted, they would call the senator's office and ask, how many phone calls did we get about this bill? And apparently, if there were something like 25 phone calls on one side of a bill or an issue, and if the senator really didn't care how they voted, then that would persuade them, and he might just vote the way the constituents asked him to. That's amazing to me. 25 phone calls. That's all it took to persuade that senator. And she said at the state level, all it really takes is 15 phone calls to a legislator to persuade them on how to vote. 15. Now, I've called my representatives and senators at times, and I have to admit it's a little intimidating to call about an issue, even though I know I'm not going to be talking to John Yarmuth or Rand Paul or Senator McConnell. It's still kind of a hard call to make. And maybe that's why they figure a phone call means a lot, because people don't make those phone calls unless they're really passionate about that issue. And McGarry says that if you do call your representative or your senator, be very specific about which bill you're referring to and keep your reasons simple. Apparently, it's better to give specific examples of your reasons rather than generalities. So talking about how that bill affects your children or how it's going to affect your parents is better than just saying people. 
Some advocacy groups provide scripts for making those kind of phone calls. And she says that's okay, but get off script a little bit. Don't just read it. Make it sound like it's in your own words and reword it so it sounds more natural. And she recommends that we aim our argument towards the topic that that specific legislator really cares about, what they're really known for. So if the politician cares a lot about the environment, then gear your issue that way. If they care more about the economy, we'll emphasize how that issue affects the economy. If your representative is into family values, then explain how your issue is important to families like your own. Judith McGarry recommended that activists should work more from the grassroots upwards. So instead of having a single advocacy group trying to persuade a legislator to act upon a specific issue, that advocacy group should try to enlarge their group first, get more people involved, maybe connect with other groups about that same issue, and start what she called the groundswell movement. And when you have a groundswell movement, that overwhelms the legislators. So then you can have more impact at the Capitol when they realize there's a whole lot of people who care a lot about this issue. And when they realize these people are organized, that's what it's all about. The organization reflects the passion. The speaker also mentioned that rather than arguing for big, overarching, systematic changes, you can actually make more progress by arguing for smaller, specific issues. If you could succeed on some smaller, specific issues, you'll not only be building your movement because success breeds success, but you're also slowly working on that legislator. Maybe you're slowly changing their overall attitude about the big systematic change that you want to make. And she said we need to keep in mind that each little victory is just that. It's a stepping stone to larger victories in the future. McGarry thought, that a lot of nonprofit advocacy organizations make a mistake by overemphasizing one specific piece of legislation. You know, they'll say things like, all we need is this one bill to pass and everything will get better, or we need to win this one last election and everything's going to get better, but then say that bill does pass or that particular election does go in the way that that party wanted it to do. And the voter looks around later and realizes, well, I don't see things being a whole lot different. Maybe that advocacy group was being overdramatic. Maybe they overpromised me then you run the risk of alienating those very people that you're trying to get on your side. And they may not vote your way again in the future. So she's saying, don't promise too much. I wonder if that alienation is one of the things that led so many people who normally aren't involved in politics to suddenly come out and vote for Donald Trump in 2016. Maybe they were alienated by the old political system and he seemed different, so they went for it. So the speaker said that people shouldn't get frustrated if you don't see large systemic political changes because these things take a long time, but that we also shouldn't be promising large systemic changes either. So Judith McGarry ended her talk about politics at this sustainable agriculture conference by using an agricultural analogy. She said building healthy soil takes years or even decades to achieve. And building a healthy society takes a long time, too. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.